Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Mark chapter 8, and we're beginning to read from verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth. No sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Thank you very much, Stephen, uh, for reading for us. Um, uh, do keep your Bibles open there at page 1011. Um, one of the bits of paper you received on the, uh, on the way in uh, has a little outline of this, uh, this uh, message um, on the back of it, so you might like to have that um, uh, within sight as well. Um, as we begin, let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, you say in your word that your word has been breathed out by you and that it is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And so, Father, we pray, please be doing that work in us this morning. Make us wise in saving faith. Speak to us today, we pray, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one of um, my, the fav- my favourite parts of my uh, role here uh, as curate um, is uh, leading courses like Encounters, which we began on Tuesday night, and Christianity Explored, another course that we run here. I, I did this for a few years while I was a trainee um, here years ago as well. And over the years, uh, as I've um, uh, done those courses, I've often looked at the miracles of Jesus with people um, who aren't yet believers. And uh, as I've done that, sometimes people have said to me, well, Chris, if if I were to see that, then I'd believe. Why doesn't God just give me a sign, something undeniably miraculous that I can look at and say, well, that means I can believe. And when someone says that to me, I totally sympathize with what they're saying. 
But I do also find myself thinking that they're wrong. And here's why. By the time we get to Mark chapter 8, verse 11, which is where our reading begins this morning, we've seen Jesus do the following things. He's driven out evil spirits with a word. He's cured a leper. He's healed a paralytic and a deaf and mute man and many, many others as well. He's calmed a storm with just his voice. He's raised a little girl back from the dead. He's miraculously provided enough food to feed thousands from just a few loaves and fish. In doing those things, he's demonstrated his power over sickness, death, nature, and the spiritual world. He's done all of that, and yet still his disciples don't believe in him, who he is and what he says he's come to do. He's done all that, and yet still the religious leaders of his day don't believe in him. And all that shows us something about the human condition and therefore about ourselves as well. We like to think of ourselves as rational and reasonable people who will be guided to what we believe by the evidence put before us. But the story of Mark's gospel shows us that's not the case. The evidence of Mark's gospel, and not least the signs and miracles of Jesus, all scream the conclusion that Jesus is God. And yet by this point in the gospel, not one single person has correctly identified Jesus as such. Why is that? Because there wasn't enough evidence? Of course not. There was loads. Why then? Because signs are never enough. Our interpretation of the miracles and signs and evidence for Jesus is always controlled by something else, by the heart attitude with which we approach that evidence. That controls how I interpret the evidence and therefore whether I respond rightly to Jesus or not. In the section that we're looking at this morning, we're going to see two groups of people who respond wrongly to Jesus despite seeing plenty of signs because of their heart attitude towards him. Two wrong responses that serve as warnings to us this morning and prompts to inspect the attitudes of our own hearts. And here's why it's important to all of us. If Jesus is God, as he claims to be, then how we respond to Jesus is the most important decision we will ever make in our lives. And for those of us here who are Christians and have received Jesus as Lord, how we continue to respond to him will define our discipleship. And so whoever we are, we need to heed the warning of this passage and allow God to challenge us through his word about our heart attitude to Jesus. There are two wrong responses we see this morning, and the first is the pride of the Pharisees. The pride of the Pharisees. Look down at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Now, this is a huge contrast to the crowd we saw last week at the start of chapter 8. There, a crowd came and stayed with Jesus, not for signs, but to hear Jesus teach. Here we have some Pharisees who have come to Jesus not to hear him teach, but merely for a sign. The crowd sat under Jesus' teaching, receiving from him, but these Pharisees came standing over him in judgment. Why do I say that? What do you see in verse 11? It says that they came to test him. As soon as you presume to test someone, you are, are you not, standing over them in judgment? And that's the attitude with which these Pharisees come to Jesus, not looking to be taught by him, but presuming to judge him. And that shows us the pride of the Pharisees. Now, someone might want to challenge that. 
um, asking, isn't their request entirely reasonable? Jesus is asking people to believe some pretty incredible things. Aren't they entirely reasonable to ask for some kind of sign to give credibility to those claims? When friends have said that to me, I've uh, felt a pang of sympathy for them. But if we consider these Pharisees here, we have to conclude their request isn't reasonable for at least two reasons. Firstly, Jesus has done loads of miracles already. If this request came in a vacuum, I suppose that might be one thing, but it doesn't. It comes in the context of countless miracles that the Pharisees had witnessed, but still they hadn't believed. If Jesus had granted their request, he would have been encouraging the idea that what they really needed was one more sign. But he knew that that wasn't the case. There was a deeper cause to their unbelief. And this is the second thing that makes their request unreasonable. They came to Jesus with a judgmental attitude of heart. Every time we've heard the Pharisees open their mouths so far in Mark's gospel, it has been to criticize Jesus or his disciples. And now they turn up to test him. See, they've already made up their minds about Jesus. This isn't a legitimate request for truth. It's a determined effort to discredit Jesus. Further evidence will make no difference because their minds are closed to him. Perhaps that's why he sighs deeply in verse 12. Do you see that? It says he sighed deeply. The last time Jesus sighed deeply was back in chapter 7, verse 34. Just one column to the left there. Um, Take a look. He's just about to heal the deaf and mute man. And it says, verse 34 of chapter 7, he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. It was a spiritual picture of the opening up that all people need to experience, becoming open up to to be able to hear and understand the truth about Jesus. Jesus sighed deeply when faced with a man who was physically deaf, And now he sighs deeply when faced with people who are spiritually deaf. That is, willfully refusing to hear his teaching or respond to him and the evidence about him. Their minds are closed and locked and they've thrown away the key. And Jesus knows that no number of signs will be able to unlock it again. And so he (sighs) sighs deeply in sadness and frustration. A few weeks ago, I was doing some important work, uh, watching videos on YouTube, um, all the important, like cats running into mirrors, things like that, important work. Um, and uh, I was, uh, my eye was caught by something a little bit more profound uh, than that. It was um, a chat show um, where, only a little bit more profound, um, uh, it was a chat show, but Richard Dawkins was one of the guests on the sofa, and um, he was being uh, interviewed. And, um, uh, of course, Dawkins being this uh, famous um, new atheist uh, and uh, scientist, um, the conversation naturally turned uh, towards his opinions about God and God's existence and that kind of thing. And the interviewer asked him, is there any evidence that would persuade you God exists? Now, just pause there. What's a scientist supposed to do? They're supposed to um, impartially collect evidence and then allow that evidence to draw them lead them to their conclusion. Um, Now, before I say anything else, I want to be clear. I'm I'm not trying to be unkind uh, to the man. Um, It would be all too easy 
and cheap and cowardly a shot, frankly, to take from a church pulpit to do that. I'm not doing that, but I think that his reply is very revealing. This is what he said. He said, well, I suppose if the sky was torn open and I saw God coming down on a fiery chariot, then I might believe. And then he paused for a moment and he added to that answer. He said, but you know, even then, I think I would find it more likely to conclude that I was just having some kind of hallucination. Now, that is revealing, isn't it? What that reveals is that he's basically saying whatever evidence he was presented with, he would never allow it to persuade him that God might exist. He will always cast doubt on the evidence, even to the point of disbelieving his own senses. You can't really get more extreme than that, can you? Even if the sky was torn open, he'd say, no, that can't be God. Why not? Because God doesn't exist. Well, how can you ever be shown that God exists if every time he proves himself to you, you declare it a hoax? It's actually very unscientific to dismiss evidence because it disagrees with the conclusion you've already decided is correct. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm really keen that this doesn't come across as um, unkind. I I apologize if it does. What I'm trying to do here, what I'm trying to um, uh, do is to uh, challenge you about what your answer to that question would be. Is there any evidence that would persuade you that Jesus is God as he claims to be? I presume you're open enough to say that you could be persuaded if the evidence were enough. Well, what then would be enough evidence? In recent weeks, we've read in Mark's gospel of Jesus doing extraordinary miracles, healing a deaf and mute man, miraculously producing enough food to feed thousands of people, If we're looking for evidence that Jesus is God, we'd expect to read in the Gospels of him doing miraculous and impossible things. We can't roll our eyes when it's said that he did. And we have to take the claims that he did seriously, not just dismissing them because they don't fit with what we've already decided to believe. If you want a sign from Jesus as these Pharisees did, well, let's start with those that Jesus has already given. For us, that's in the Bible. And if now the uh, one argument you find yourself mentally retreating to is, well, I I can't trust the Bible, can't you? How do you know that? Have you looked into the evidence for the reliability of this document? Because the evidence that the Bible has remained unchanged through the centuries is extraordinarily good, far better than for any other ancient document. And the evidence that what the Bible records is an accurate reflection of history is also very good. Unless, of course, you start out with the conclusion that supernatural things are impossible. If God exists, of course he'd do supernatural things. The fact that someone claiming to be God is also recorded to have done miraculous things is really just the first step in leading us to take that claim seriously, surely. If you want to consider that more, I've put some uh, copies of this book just over in the church center. Can I really trust the Bible? Um, If that's something you'd like to explore uh, more there, over there, I think three quid. Let me say, I find this very challenging for myself too, as a Christian. I believe in and follow Jesus, but even so, I have to ask myself whether I come to Jesus with an attitude not too dissimilar from these Pharisees. Do I approach Jesus with humility or pride? When I hear his word, the Bible, do I come with an attitude that is teachable or judgmental? With my mind willing to be changed or my mind already made up? 
When I read things in the Bible I don't like, do I allow my thinking to be changed or do I explain it away? Even as a Christian, my pride can keep me from growing as a disciple because I no longer allow myself to be challenged or my mind to be changed. Uh, Last week, uh, we saw a crowd coming and staying with Jesus for his teaching. And as Jesus saw their spiritual hunger, he was moved by compassion for them. He provided for them and they went home satisfied. Remember that? But Jesus saw in these Pharisees an attitude not of humble inquiry, but of pride, having already made up their minds about him. And so he left them empty-handed. Verse 12. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed over to the other side. They left with nothing, and Jesus goes. And then Mark shows us, as well as the pride of the Pharisees, this second wrong response to Jesus, and that is the dullness of the disciples. Now on the boat, crossing the lake, we read in verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them, Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Uh, Now, at home, we have um, a a bread maker. It was actually a gift to my wife from this church family when she stopped working in the church office a few years ago. So thank you. Um, It's the gift that keeps on giving. We uh, love using our our bread maker. Um, And for those of you who have one, uh, you'll know basically how it works. Um, Even if you don't, you'll probably know how it works. um, The first thing you do when you're, you're making it is you sprinkle in a little bit of yeast at the bottom of the baking tin, and then in goes the flour, butter, water, salt, and the machine does its thing, and ping, in the morning you have nice... Um, fresh bread and um, it's really amazing that just that little sprinkling of yeast has such an effect through the whole uh, batch of bread just a little bit of yeast can have a really big influence and there's something about the Pharisees and Herod that Jesus is warning his disciples just a little bit of that could have an awful and profound influence over you that's why he says in verse 15 there be careful watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. But what is that, that something, that, that yeast? Well, from the context um, of Mark's gospel, it seems that he's warning them against this attitude that fails to respond to the evidence about Jesus because you've already got your mind made up. The last time we saw the Pharisees mentioned in the same breath as Herod was back in chapter 3, verse 6. Why don't we just turn there now? Uh, just turn back a few pages to chapter 3, verse 6 on page 1004. Chapter three, verse six, it says, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. See, they've already made up their minds about Jesus. And so they approached him with totally the wrong attitude. Jesus is warning his disciples just a little bit of that attitude could have a dramatic and awful influence on them. But for the moment, the meaning of what Jesus has just said goes right over the heads of the disciples, as we see in verse 16. Take a look. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Uh, You remember in verse 14, it said, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them 
in the boat. The disciples think that Jesus was talking to them about the problem of not having enough bread. They're going, oh no, we forgot the lunch. Now just press pause for a moment there. Back in chapter six, Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Then last week, we saw Jesus facing another hungry crowd, this time 4,000. The disciples still didn't learn that they should probably have turned straight to Jesus to ask him to fix the problem. And so Jesus tried to make the point for them once again by repeating the miracle, feeding every one of those 4,000 with seven loaves and just a few fish. And now, shortly afterwards, they're on the boat and the disciples are going, oh no, we forgot the lunch. And in understandable exasperation, Jesus responds like this, verse 17. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? You can feel the pain in Jesus' voice, can't you? The diagnosis he gives here of the spiritual condition of his disciples is a terrible one. Now just imagine with me that you are going to your GPs, uh, you walk through the front door, you head to the reception desk, let them know you're there, you take a, a seat, flick through some awful magazines for a few minutes, um, and then someone rescue, rescues you by calling your name, you stand up, you follow the voice, head into the GP's room, they're tapping away at something on their keyboard, then they swing round to you and go, ah, um, yes, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, we have your test results. I'm afraid it's not terribly good news. Um, I'm afraid your cognitive function test revealed that you don't really understand what's going on from one moment to the next. The scans appear to show your heart is severely calloused over and hardened. Your eyesight is gone. You're completely deaf. And you don't seem to remember that we've had this appointment three times already this week. Now, of course, if you were deaf, you wouldn't even be able to hear the diagnosis in the first place. But you get the point. It's a terrible diagnosis to receive, isn't it? Spiritually speaking, Jesus is saying that is the condition of his disciples, Blind eyes, slow minds, hard hearts, deaf ears, forgetful memories. Jesus says that that not because the disciples didn't get the point about the yeast. That's kind of tricky. It's fair enough. It takes a few moments to work that out. No, he's saying this. He's exasperated because even after his recent provision of food for thousands, they're still worried about not having enough bread. That's why he reminds them of the feedings of the 5,000 and 4,000, miracles that screamed that Jesus is God and can abundantly satisfy the needs of his people. But they still haven't grasped that. Verse 21, do you still not understand? Now, this is really important. If I've lost you at any point along the way, come back on board here. We need to see that these disciples are not innocent victims afflicted by spiritual illnesses completely outside of their control. It's not as simple as saying, poor old disciples, what chance did they have of responding rightly to Jesus with such a list of ailments? Jesus is saddened and exasperated by them because they can respond to him rightly, but they haven't done. He warns them in verse 15, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And that shows us two things. Firstly, that they can respond. He's not kind of thinking to himself, well, I know you can't do anything about this, but I'll warn you anyway. No, he's really calling them to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. They can respond. 
And secondly, he's warning them because they need to respond. He's warning them to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees because they are vulnerable to it. There's a danger for those of us who are Christians, particularly who have been Christians for a long time, to allow a warning to not be like the Pharisees, to just wash over us. We can easily slip into this pantomime reading of the Gospels such that whatever we read Pharisees, we all kind of think, boo. And whenever we read Jesus, we think, yay. And we think we're so much on Jesus' side that we can't possibly be in danger of being anything like the Pharisees. They're the baddies. We're not them. And that's exactly why we're so vulnerable to being like them. Because the greatest dangers are those we don't think we're vulnerable to. A reminder of what this yeast is that we're vulnerable to, it's an attitude that fails to respond to the evidence about Jesus because our, our minds are already in some way made up. Are the disciples really vulnerable to that? Yeah, they are. You see, the response of the Pharisees and the disciples, they aren't actually that far apart from each other. Both have failed to respond rightly to what they've seen and heard about Jesus. The Pharisees did that because of pride that led to them actively rejecting Jesus. The disciples did that because of dullness that led to their passive failure to respond rightly to who Jesus was. One responded actively, the other responded passively, but they both failed to respond rightly to Jesus. And the dullness of the disciples isn't an innocent thing, it's driven by the hardening of their hearts. And so Jesus warns them, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Have they actively rejected Jesus? No, but they've done nothing to positively recognize and respond to him as their God. All you have to do to begin going the way of the Pharisees is nothing. No response is still a response. No response is not neutral It's failing to respond rightly to Jesus and it's a sign of our being hard-hearted. And this is where all this really begins to hit home for us this morning, I think. We each need to ask ourselves in the cold light of day, Christians as much as anyone else, am I responding rightly to Jesus? A wrong response can look like actively rejecting him, but it can also look like doing nothing in response to what we've seen and heard. It's easy to see if you're actively rejecting Jesus, but it's much easier for us Christians to miss that we're passively rejecting him by failing to respond as we should. Not responding to him is responding to him. And this feels deeply convicting to me. How often do I read God's word or hear it taught and walk away unchanged, unresponsive? And even when I walk away unchanged by God's word, having failed to hear or remember anything, does does that not reveal a hardness of heart in me? What really does it mean for me to call Jesus my Lord if I don't respond to him with obedience? You see, I'm more like the disciples than I'd like to admit. And the disciples are more like the Pharisees than they'd like to admit. We are so slow to respond rightly to Jesus. You can see, if you pick up the church Bibles, at the beginning of chapter 8 there, that heading, Jesus feeds the 4,000. And the next heading, the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And given the diagnosis that we've seen Jesus give of his disciples, we might have expected the next heading to be, Jesus finds new disciples. That would have been appropriate, wouldn't it? When they arrived on the other side of the lake, Jesus said to them, I'm done with you lot, and walked off. That would have been fitting. But he didn't. 
No, he patiently, graciously stuck with them. And slowly, so slowly, they began to respond rightly to Jesus, getting a little bit right but much wrong and then a little bit more right and a little bit less wrong. And slowly, slowly, while still screwing up, eventually growing into mature disciples who grasped who Jesus is and what he came to do and what it means to follow him. And indeed, who did follow him until the end and wrote the New Testament so we could learn to do the same. And so let me end with this encouragement. If ever you despair of yourself and the slowness of your growth, spiritually speaking, as a disciple of Jesus, such that you might give up on yourself, know that Jesus won't. He doesn't find new disciples. He keeps going with us, patiently teaching and showing us more of himself and calling us to respond rightly to him. We don't need to fear that he's gonna give up on us. We need to learn to come to him with the right attitude, not proudly standing over him in judgment, but humbly sitting under his teaching and seeking to respond rightly to his voice. And he will graciously make us the disciples that we long to be. In close, some words from Psalm 95. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did that day in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how hard are our hearts? How slow are we to believe and respond to Jesus? Forgive us, please, for our pride and our dullness. Help and empower us by your Holy Spirit to be disciples of Jesus who humbly hear and respond as we should, declaring him our Lord and maker and living with him as our master. For we ask it in his name. Amen.